This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. Worldwide, it's estimated that over 1.8 billion people menstruate every month. However, women experience their menstrual cycle differently, and sometimes it can be hard to know what is considered normal. In today's episode, we'll discuss premenstrual disorders and how females can protect their physical and mental well-being. So stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together, we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is The College Handoff. Today's episode is dedicated to Christina Bone Rudd, a 2010 BYU nursing alumna who died due to a premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, which can become more serious the longer it is undiagnosed and untreated. The show features Laura Murphy, an education director for the International Association for Premenstrual Disorders. She explains when a menstrual cycle becomes abnormal and the genetic research supporting the imbalance and the suicidal thoughts it brings. We will also learn how to cope or support others with PMDD. We want listeners to know that help is available. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Let's get started. All right, our next guest today is Laura Murphy. She has been interacting with the world of premenstrual disorder for a long time, and she's been talking to people a lot about um, how uh, periods and um, menstrual cycles can mentally and physically affect uh, people in a variety of ways. So we're so happy to talk to her. Laura, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, Laura, we should go ahead and specify um, and just say that you're not from Utah. Would you mind telling our listeners where you're talking to us from right now? Yeah, sure. So while I um, I work for uh, an organization based in America, I work for the International Association for Premenstrual Disorders. I'm actually based about 45 minutes out of London um, in England. And I think like with so many organizations now, we're very a very virtual team. So we kind of dotted all over the place. Yeah. I've never been to Utah. I'd like to go. <laughs> well, Laura, I do want to um, just kind of launch in. Um, when you look at your LinkedIn profile, one of the very first things that you see um, in your bio, you say, I talk about periods and suicide. And I don't think those are usually topics or ideas that people usually put together. So, I mean, maybe just help us address the elephant in the room here a little bit. Why did you get into this really hard conversation? And what is the tie between periods and, and suicide? Okay, well, if if I start off from a a personal point of view, um, I, it turns out, started having symptoms of premenstrual dysphoric disorder when I was 17. And it wasn't until 17 years later that I got my answer via Dr. Google, um, where I found out that PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, is a thing. So for years, I had suffered with bouts of depression, anxiety, panic attacks, um, I'd gone back and forth to the doctor, you know, saying, I think I have bipolar disorder, something's not right. And I was saying, I have really bad PMS, like I have to go to bed, I'd get hypersomnia, so I'd have to sleep for sort of 17 hours a day and just still feel exhausted sort of in the week running up to my period. But like I said, it wasn't for 
many years, I think it was 17 years when I sort of finally found out about PMDD and the, the penny kind of dropped for me. You know, we call it the light bulb moment when you kind of realize that all these experiences that you've gone through have a meaning and they're down to a biological core, a biological cause. I think like so many people put it down to a personality fault, you know, not being able to cope like other people, not being strong enough like other people, not being able to cope with, you know, a bit of PMS like other people, because that's what the doctors were saying. You know, everyone has PMS. You just have to learn to live with it. Um, so it wasn't until many years later that I had my my answer and I joined some support groups for PMDD. And literally a very jaw-dropping moment of scrolling down this sea of stories. And they were just also very, very similar to mine. Walking out of jobs, having panic attacks, not being helped, able to hold down relationships or careers, struggling every month, having bad reactions to um, birth control. I'd become suicidal on some forms of birth control and aggressive on others. Um, looking back so for me that light bulb moment was such a change in my life that I kind of became a bit addicted to giving other people hopefully their light bulb moment um so that I think as PMDD is so little known about and so little talked about generally among you know medical professionals as well as the the public People suffer for years on their own and uh, recent research has shown that 30% of people, I should say, so this is a condition that affects one in 20 women and assigned female at birth. It's not a small or rare condition, although it is a um, a spectrum disorder. So people suffer to different degrees and for different lengths of time each month. But 30% of those we surveyed had attempted to take their life whilst in PMDD crisis. Part of the symptoms can be, you know, severe depression, anxiety, um, you know, very often, but not always suicidal thoughts, intrusive thoughts, issues sleeping, changes in diet, um, for some people, physical symptoms. But I think so many people don't put the link together between that aspect of suicidality and being so desperate each month. And periods, I think PMS for for many years has kind of been uh, a punchline, the, the butt of jokes, you know, the old female hysteria, and knowing that there's this disorder that can lead to that is is kind of scary. That not enough people know about it. Um, so to be honest, I started a patient um, awareness campaign back in 2017, and through that, I um, became involved with IAPND. And I'm now their director of education and awareness. So I'm fortunate I get to talk about this a lot and hopefully help people and get them to a place where they can find information to be able to help themselves. Can you maybe dive down a little bit more deeper about maybe some of the physiology of what's happening and how, you know, periods and cycles and things like that, how that actually ends up, you know, transitioning into really bad depression and suicidal thoughts and things like that? Of course. So um, I should say I'm not a scientist either. (laughs) I come from a patient um, expert, you know, 
place. Um, but PNDD is a hormone sensitivity that occurs in the brain. So the brain has a malfunction, a genetic malfunction, where it has an abnormal negative reaction to the normal hormone fluctuations. So PNDD isn't a hormone imbalance. There's nothing wrong unless someone obviously you know has an imbalance as well as but that's not the cause there's nothing wrong with the hormones or the hormone levels or the way they function it's um during ovulation and around the time of someone's period when those um, large fluctuations are happening in the sex hormones the brain has a, a negative response to those causing abnormal negative emotional symptoms wow and I mentioned that's helpful. And I, I do understand, like you mentioned, you know, you're not necessarily a scientist, but you can speak as a patient. I imagine it's maybe helpful just to understand that um, when an individual struggles with this, that it's not so much just, um, it's not a them problem. It's not like a personality thing. It's not like a mental, th- I mean, there's a mental elements in there, right? But it's not something that they're necessarily in control of. It's biological. And so I imagine that can help people, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, just kind of distance themselves from the problem a little bit and see it as something that's not personal. I think I think when you find out it has an actual cause, it's real validation. So the the research came out, I think, in 2017, where they found the, the genetic element of it. And I know personally that was very validating because, you know, talking about periods and talking about mental health are both very stigmatized it's getting a lot lot better finding out that it has a biological cause it's just so validating you know it helps explain it to other people it helps explain it to partners and loved ones and it's also personally I have found so much easier to accept it myself that it isn't a personality flaw I'm not being lazy when I'm too exhausted to move I'm not languishing when I'm so depressed I can't get out of bed you know this is something that's happening to me and you can't think your way out of it there's no you know there are tools to to help manage it as best you can but it's not a choice it's certainly not a choice same as any other condition you can't outthink diabetes you can't outthink depression or schizophrenia there's tools that can help there's medication that can perhaps help but um it's it's certainly not a choice what do you think is the future look like how do you think society should go about approaching and um, helping individuals who struggle with PMDD? Um, I think when we talk about society, the, the focus really has to be on healthcare professionals rather than society at large. There is still such a lack of understanding and awareness that we see every day across the groups, you know, and that's international. That's not one particular country where people are constantly going to doctors and being told it's just PMS or you have bipolar or you just have to learn to live with it. Um, so I think the focus needs to really be on the the medical profession. We've just started at IAPMD a um, professional community for healthcare professionals and also cycle scientists to sort of network, collaborate, educate. Because one thing that we're seeing is, you know, we're creating as a head of our, our clinical advisory board says, you know, we're creating thousands of patient experts, but when they're going to see the providers, there's no one there to help them. Um, so I think the focus really has to be on healthcare professionals looking at patients, seeing if they're having any cyclical um, cyclical symptoms, if they're reacting badly to contraceptives. You know, not everyone does with PMDD. Some do really well on it, but there seems to be uh, so many of us that are very, very have very severe reactions to to synthetic hormones. Um, 
I think, and I would think that PMDD is so easy to spot because I see it all the time. I see people talking on television. I see stories in the papers and it's just obvious, you know, and I think as nurses, you're in a frontline position to be able to see this. If someone's reporting bad PMS, if someone is reporting mental health issues that kind of come and go if people are reporting um, bipolar rapid cycling bipolar it's a really good opportunity and all that has to be done is screening and then really get them in front of a provider that understands how to translate that information yeah and i'm sure that takes years for a healthcare professional to kind of get up to your level as you mentioned you know you think it's just second nature to identify this and to be (laughs) able to see it because you have so much experience and exposure to it and a lot of um, nurses and healthcare professionals just aren't looking for that. And you keep talking about this screening process. Um, mechanically, what, what would that look like in a practical setting? If let's say I'm a nurse and I'm not necessarily being exposed to the patient on like a regular basis, like what types of questions or things should I be aware of that might just increase my sensitivity to this? It would depend on the setting, obviously, and the complaint. But I think, you know, if someone is reporting bad PMS, like, bad PMS I think you need to dig into you know the depths of that Um, I think anyone that's reporting anyone that's ovulating you know women and assigned female at birth individuals anyone that's ovulating maybe just ask the question do you get any symptoms before your period how do you feel before your period you know um in terms of um screening and tracking, we would ask people, there's um, paper versions on our website that people can fill out and they're monthly symptom trackers. So it has all the DSM diagnostic criteria, as well as a few others um, where people can mark those symptoms for the 30 days of per month and line it up with their menstrual cycle. So that would be the same for PMDD and PME. And for a diagnosis of PMDD, there needs to be two months worth of um, careful tracking by mm. a patient. I'm also wondering if like, you know, support groups or things like that have been helpful to you that you've mentioned. Uh, Were those helpful at all? Yeah, massively. I think peer support, I learned so much from the peer support groups when I first first joined them, you know, at my doctor's, I think I was given a, a leaflet on PMS once and that was it. You know, from these groups is where I learned, you know, how to find specialists, what treatments I should be trying, what to expect when trying different treatments. Um, you know, I learned that everyone is so different within the community. Um, you know, there's so much trial and error when it comes to to treatments. You have to jump through a, a lot of hoops. You know, it can be really discouraging. It can be really frustrating. Um and heartbreaking as well to know that, you know, you're, you're trying to throw all these darts at the dartboard and hoping something sticks. And if it doesn't, then you have to, or I had to rather, I shouldn't put words in other people's mouth, go through just this most horrific experience each month of knowing I was going to be plunged into depression, knowing I was going to be in bed sobbing and not being able to stop it, knowing that I wasn't going to be able to function knowing the only thing I could ever liken it to, especially near the end when my symptoms worsened was going through a bereavement every month. Like literally I would feel heartbroken and like the world had been pulled out from under my feet, you know, and I think I'm a fairly 
pragmatic, humorous, capable person, but literally that all goes, it just all face planted the floor every month. And, you know, it would be near, near the end in my thirties, it was going downhill for three months, sorry, for three days, then about seven days of just being kind of wiped out and exhausted. You know, I'd get to stages where my legs wouldn't work properly. It was like walking through treacle, crying all the time, wanting to escape thoughts of suicide, um, anxiety and depression. And knowing that is coming on a schedule every month, one, it's really difficult to manage because you have to go through it. Two, life gets incredibly difficult to manage because how do you hold down a job? How do you function? How do you parent potentially have a you know positive relationship it's it's very difficult but I, I do honestly think peer support can be an absolute lifesaver you know we we run a peer support service here at IAPMD and we get people reach out with questions and needing support all the time and we also have um, six close support groups and one anonymous um, forum where people can go and I think there's a real shared language and understanding because like I said, it is quite a unique experience to go through. There's an understanding of like, you know, okay, which day are you? Okay. I'm day 27. And you're like, okay, so you're due tomorrow. Okay. What are you going to do to get yourself to tomorrow? You know, I think there's a shared understanding of the experience that can only come from someone else who's lived with it too, to understand what, you know, what does day 17 mean? What does day 24 mean? What does day 27 mean to someone, you know, when people come you know, we used to have like these memes, like me and my friendship group, like when someone came on their period, like it was just like, you know, the period meme and everyone would be like, yay, you know, sweet relief, you know, it's sort of a, have to to find humor in these things, you know, but Mm. um, it's a, yeah, I, I think peer support is incredible. And I would yeah, definitely advise anyone who is uh, seeing patients who they think they may have it or are reporting it or trying to figure it out or they have a diagnosis um, to try and find some peer support in whatever format that looks like, you know, to, to sue them personally. Yeah. Laura, you're, you're unique because you're part of an organization and you mentioned it, uh, the International Association for Premenstrual Disorders that uh, helps coordinate access to care and support groups and resources for everyone around the world. And so um, I'm wondering, you know, if one of our nursing students, you know, either for themselves or for a friend, a colleague, if if any of them want to find access to these resources locally, like here in Utah or wherever, wherever they're listening to this podcast, how is there a website they should go to to kind of interact with um, the IAPD uh, or where, where should they go? Yeah, sure. So IAPMD.org is our website and there's a tab for professionals. So that has um, tools and resources. Should also say, so we have a um, a professional community that launched today. It's good timing um, where people can come and learn more about PMDD and network. Um, So we have a clinical practice community and then we have a cycle science community. So for any students, it is free for two years. That's up to... um, postgrad level and where you can come you can network you can come to the webinars for free you can watch the all the webinars in a library there is papers there is networking events so it's a really good opportunity for people to come and 
um, meet other people and learn and sort of educate themselves. Um, I'd highly recommend that, um, especially as a student. I think it's really, really useful. We've got lots of student researchers as well. So it's fantastic to kind of, you know, be able to encourage these people coming through the ranks to really, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting area of research from a science point of view. It's really, I'm learning quite a lot. I don't understand it all, <laughs> but I do learn quite a lot from the research scientists. But I think also from a provider point of view, it's um, fairly niche still. You know, it's a, it's a good area to kind of get into and understand and get some footing. And by even just doing the smallest bit of research and learning how to spot the signs, you will save people's lives, definitely. Well, Laura, thank you so much for for sharing all of your, not only just general wisdom on this topic, but even your personal experience with it. I'm sure it can be hard sometimes for you, but it definitely, I think, has um, helped me at the very least kind of get an idea of what PMDD actually is, what it looks like. And thank you so much for being on our podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress. It is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the United States. They are committed to improving crisis services and advancing suicide prevention by empowering individuals, advancing professional best practices, and building awareness. Please contact them at 1-800-273-8255. Our next guests today are Steve and Mary Beth Bone, the parents of Christina Rudd. Thank you for coming on our show and sharing more about Christina's life with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. So just to begin, we want to ask, as a nurse, what did Christina do? Was there a specific field or unit that she loved? Well, she uh, was drawn toward working with cardiac patients. And so her first job after graduating from the nursing program was at Baylor in Grapevine, Texas, and she worked in cardiac care. And then she moved up to Utah and she went back to IMC in Murray where she had done an internship and she worked in the thoracic ICU. She absolutely loved the patients. And she said that she was more comfortable when she was alone in the room with the patients, then her personality kind of came out. And she had a funny story one time about how she said, Latter-day Saints are really difficult to wake up after anesthesia. And she said, it's because we don't have, you know, a lot of caffeine or uh, uh, alcohol and things like that in our systems. And so she said, it, it can be a challenge to wake them up. And so there was one family that she was with and she was waking up the dad and uh, after his surgery. And uh, she just felt like it was just the funnest time. The family was laughing. She was laughing. They were having a great time together. And and she got the dad to wake up. Well, it turned out he was somebody in IMC, like a vice president. And so they ended up writing an article about Christina and her humor in the ICU. No way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that always kind of caught her off guard because she really wasn't trying to be a um, known for that. But she just really enjoyed being with patients and their families. Oh, I love that. She sounds wonderful. Um, So what was her personality and disposition like? Did she have any traits that made her unique and really identifiable? Well, I I think uh, the main thing was with Christina, she was always uh, concerned about everyone else. 
she always thought of everyone, how she could help everyone. And she was just a very kind and, and, and generous person. And I remember that she, one thing that she loved to do was to be with the kids. And so she loved children. And I remember we would go to church and if there was a difficult child, uh, she would pull them aside and she would sing to them and she would talk to them and show interest in them. And that just kind of carried over into her her nursing as well, because she's very kind and compassionate and always was. And she was um, always, uh, when my dad was in his later years, was in a assisted living center, she would always make him, uh, set time aside to go visit with him and show an interest in him and, and all of the older aunts and uncles and just all of her cousins, relatives, anyone. She was just very kind. Uh, I would like to add to that too. Uh, we heard from young women leaders and close friends of hers and ward members who all have their memories of her. And one said in more than 30 years, I'm not exaggerating to say that one youth rises to the very top of so many that I've loved. She does so because she was exceptional in maturity, kindness, intellect, testimony, and so much more. That girl was Christina. She was given so many gifts and she used them naturally and humbly from a young age. And then she went on to say about how the younger girls adored her and they looked up to her. And another sister wrote to us saying that Christina was always a powerful force for good and that she she lived an uplifting and inspiring life as she moved around so many different groups of people. We saw that over and over among the notes from friends and family that Christina was that way. It wasn't it wasn't um, something that she worked hard to do. It was very natural for her to be such a loving girl. Outside of nursing, what were her hobbies and talents? Obviously, nurses do have a life outside of their um, profession. So what was she like? Well, Christina loved, she was, she was pretty athletic. She loved playing tennis. That was probably her sport uh, that she loved. And she also was a, a gifted singer. So she performed a lot. She did, she played the piano. She sang, she took many years of, of lessons and through high school uh, was able to be part of the choirs. And the singing was her, her gift. And we, we always laugh and remember that she probably sang before she spoke. And at a very young age, she would remember songs and she could uh, teach other people songs. And if we ever, we always talk about this too, whenever we wanted to know the the words of a song that we couldn't remember, we would just ask Christina because she's very good about remembering all the words. But she sang since she was, was little and she started performing and singing in sacrament meetings and funerals probably from age eight. Yeah, age, tiny little girl. Uh, yeah. Up. So she loved performing. And I think for her, it was it was not so much that she was performing as she was sharing a gift that she had with others. And there are so many comments and uh, notes that we received about her voice and how they felt like that, you know, she had the voice of an angel and it was really just sharing that with others so they could feel that spirit. Mm -hmm. And she had a nursing experience when she was in Taiwan uh, in the nursing program. She selected to go to Taiwan for five weeks for her nursing experience. And she told us that there was a patient in the hospital who was a tourist and the patient was from Germany and the patient's blood pressure was high. And she started singing to that patient in German and she saw the blood pressure coming down. 
so that was just an example of how she was able to integrate her singing with, uh, with her nursing profession. It's truly a tragedy that most healthcare workers are not aware of menstrual disorders like PMDD. And so, you know, as an advocate, what would you like to say to nursing alumni and current students and just healthcare workers in general to help them become more aware and better advocates for women suffering with menstrual disorders? Well, uh, one thing we asked Christina after we figured out what was wrong in July, and here she'd been suffering for seven years for sure, um, as she looks back, and possibly 10 years if the beginnings of it happened before her marriage. We asked Christina, did anyone ever, ever, ever ask you about your cycle when you went to the emergency room for being suicidal or delusional? Did a psychiatrist ask you? Did a therapist ask you? Did your general practitioner ask you? Did nurses ask you? Anybody? And she said, never. And there are three simple questions that can be added to the list of questions that patients are asked when they're suicidal or delusional. Because certainly there are other reasons for having these problems. But for someone who's menstruating, it would be helpful if they were asked, when was your last period? When is your next period? And what is PMS like for you? Because Christina told us her PMS, what she thought was PMS, was lasting two weeks. We didn't know what that meant. But to a nurse or to a doctor, they hopefully will have a light bulb go off and they'll know, oh, a PMS that's lasting two weeks is not PMS, it's PMDD. In fact, um, the year before she died, she had gone to the hospital on her birthday on October 2nd, 2020. And the next day, she woke up and she asked the nurse um, if she could go home because she's feeling so much better. And she indicated her cycle had started and her menstrual cycle. And um, the nurse said, no, you can't go home. You have treatment resistant depression. So you need to undergo electroconvulsive therapy. So Christina submitted to that and went through 11 sessions that month and then came home to us to try to recover. And then she never returned home again to her husband and children because she was getting sicker and sicker through this past year. And what we've learned is that the longer somebody goes undiagnosed and untreated, the worse it becomes. And we were told that Christina's PMDD was the worst our doctors here had ever seen. When a person is treated for PMDD, there are different treatment options, which can be learned about on IAPMD.org. Uh, but what we learned after Christina died was that she should have been very carefully monitored. And had the doctor and nurse responded to Christina's cries for help when she reported uh, bleeding three times, perhaps things would have been different. But they kept telling her it was normal when she's being treated with a hormone treatment. And we don't know if if that was possibly the cause, but we later learned she should have been carefully monitored. So this is just important for people to know if they are undergoing treatment, to speak up and ask about a monitoring plan, what the monitoring plan would look like. So that nurse was handed the key on October 2nd, 2020 to unlock this box and she didn't take it. 
We didn't take it because we didn't know what it was. But we're not medically trained. But we realize now more and more how few people in medicine know what PMDD is. And this needs to be asked about in the emergency rooms. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being willing to come talk to us. This means so much to us. Um, yeah. And again, we are so sorry for your loss. Um, I can't imagine what you guys are going through. You know, um, it means a lot to us, too, because what we've learned is the longer somebody goes untreated, and uh, the more suicidal they become. And it's kind of like a moth to the flame. And she was such a beautiful person that, I mean, we miss her terribly. We ache for her. And the only silver lining that we can see is if other people, other people get helped. Yeah. So we've been we've been contacted by several people now saying that they suspect this is what their loved one has. And they didn't know what PMDD was until we shared it in Christina's obituary. Mary Beth and Steve, thank you so much for sharing with us more about Christina and her life. We are so grateful that um, you were willing to come talk to us. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. We want to take this time to give a special thanks to Marybeth Bone and Steve Bone, Christina's parents, for taking the time out of their busy lives, and especially in a hard time, to come and talk to us about this very personal and sensitive subject. I had no idea that 1 in 20 women are affected with premenstrual disorders every month. I definitely need to be more supportive to my family and friends. Yeah, and I liked Marybeth's suggestions to become more aware of situations of when to ask patients about those three pertinent questions. Yeah, and I took some time to read Christina's online obituary and enjoyed a quote from her bishop. He said, Christina always stood out as a bright and shining light. She once did a vocal solo in church, and if there will be music in heaven, that's what it will sound like. That was a beautiful quote, and Christina's legacy will definitely be remembered. Just a reminder that the resources spoken of by Laura and by Christina's parents can be found at iapmd.org. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. We understand this is a little bit of a more heavy episode, but we really hope it helps nurses be more sensitive to the patients they'll care for. And don't forget to tune in next week for another important episode. We'll see you then.